Welcome to the VBAC Link Podcast. We are a team of expert doulas trained in supporting VBAC, have had VBACs of our own, and work extensively with VBAC women and their providers. We are here to provide detailed VBAC and cesarean prevention stories and facts in a simple, consolidated format. When we were moms preparing to VBAC, it was stories and information like we will be sharing in this podcast that helped fine-tune our intuition and build confidence in our birth preparation. We hope this does the same for you. To hear more about us and to hear our individual VBAC stories, be sure to check out episodes 1, 2, and 3. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Good morning, women of strength. You will not believe the conversation I just had with my new friend, Megan. We always talk a little bit before the episodes with our guests to help them feel comfortable and get to know them a little bit better. And guys, like literally our call was started almost 20 minutes ago. That's how long we've been talking. And oh my gosh, like my heart is like just so incredibly full right now. Megan, I I don't even know what to share about her story, guys. <laughs> I um, There's so much. And so I'm just going to let her tell most of it. But we are going to talk we're going to spend a lot of time today, um, probably not on the VBAC, but more so on a neonatal loss. So I, I just kind of want to put a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode um, that we will be talking about infant loss and neonatal loss from um, Megan's first birth with twins. And then after, at the end of the episode, when she's done sharing her story, we're going to talk about how to prepare for and go through a birth and labor after you've suffered a loss. And then the extra thing, which I'll probably get super soapboxy about for those of you that <laughs> like my soapboxes. If you don't, you'll know when to just cut this episode off. But <laughs> I'm going to talk about, me and probably me and Megan together, we'll talk about what, what are some helpful things to say and do when you're approaching a family who has suffered either a miscarriage, a stillbirth, or an infant loss. And so make sure you hang out for the end of this episode. There's going to be some really useful information for everybody in, in it at the end. And of course, we'll always have a blog to go along with it. So Megan, I would love for you to share the journey of your birth with us and share the story of Madeline and the impact that she made on your life and this world. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll say now it's been seven years since our loss, and it's, it's taken this long to really talk about it, but I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to, and thank you both Megan and Julie for that. I found out that I was pregnant in October 2010. It was completely unexpected, but such a joy, and I the first call I made after calling my husband and um, a good friend that was a doula was my doctor. I called my doctor and scheduled an appointment. He wanted to see me pretty quickly, and very quickly at four weeks, five days, I believe, he did Rather than doing an HCG blood draw to confirm the pregnancy, he did a quick ultrasound, and we saw 
two gestational facts, which means fraternal twins in all likelihood. And uh, I don't know that I could have been more happier when we saw those two facts. We were, we were cautiously optimistic because um, there's something called vanishing twin where for whatever reason you could miscarry one twin. And, but nonetheless, we were so excited, and it, it was just one of the happiest moments of our lives. I am the third woman in four generations on my mother's side of the family to have spontaneous twins. And um, so it's something that I share with my grandmother who didn't know she was pregnant. She, she thought something was different, but she didn't know she was pregnant with twins until she was delivering, delivered my aunt. And then they saw my uncle's foot. So she had a breech twin delivery. Yeah. And um, wild. And her mother gave birth to twins in a farmhouse. (laughs) So it, I had this grand tradition of women, and um, we it, we were just thrilled. We couldn't be happier. And as we got through the first trimester, everything was looking wonderful. But I'm a cautious person, like I said, cautiously optimistic. And so we played it pretty close to the vest until we got into the second trimester when we started sharing that we were not just pregnant but pregnant with twins. I continued to see my OB. Um, I was... Uh, 26 or 27 at the time, and he's who I'd seen all of my adult post-college life. And because we didn't see any complications at the time, he didn't uh, risk me up to uh, an MFM or a high-risk doctor. We just had frequent ultrasounds and monitoring, and everything looked great. Uh, It was a relatively easy pregnancy, and we thought, Everything was great until it wasn't. I woke up in the middle of the night at 32 weeks, three days, and I just immediately knew I was in labor. You always wonder as a first-time mom um, if you'll know, and I, I did. I knew. We had hoped for a medicated natural delivery or a vaginal delivery with an epidural of both babies. And we had prepared for that, but in a lot of twin birth classes, they also go over C-sections. So the babies had been head down for a while, and we went into the hospital hoping they could stop labor, and we quickly realized they couldn't. They, they tried medications, and I just kept dilating, and, you know, you start feeling pressure, and uh, eventually we just made the call, I'm going to get an epidural, and we can't stop this train. And all throughout that, I was being monitored by a doctor, uh, not my own, but one that was in the hospital. And I don't remember him coming into the room. It was a very, um, we mostly interacted with the nurse and it was very cold. So when, once we made the call that, you know, I, I can't remember if it was us that said we're, the medication isn't working or the doctor made that decision, but um My doctor got to the hospital then. I had probably been in the hospital for five hours. It was around six in the morning. And he did an ultrasound um, after they put the epidural in. And we realized that baby A, our daughter Madeline, was head down. And baby B, our son Jackson, was breech. And so um, I was hopped up on whatever medication they give you during preterm labor. My husband was terrified you know, we thought we had more time and we had no reason to think that we didn't up until I'd gone into labor. And so 
my doctor went straight to so we're going to we're going to take you to the OR we're going to do a C-section and here are the consent forms I signed them and on the way to the OR I felt my water break and so that was baby A Madeline's water we got into the OR and I I I really have a difficult time talking about um what actually happened in the delivery room but the short of it is that they delivered Madeline first. She was born at 8.18 and needed resuscitation. And then they delivered my son at 8.19. And, of course, this is a twin premature birth, so the NICU was already in the room. They took Madeline out immediately. I didn't see her. And I got to hold my son for just a minute, and then they took him out. And knowing that the twins were premature, we had an idea that this, this could be difficult, but we had no idea how bad it really was. Um, they didn't really explain that to us in the operating room. And then as soon as my husband could, he went to be with our son, Jackson. And I went to, I went into the recovery room by myself. When they resuscitated Madeline, they were able to bring her to me for just a moment. And all my life, I, I just wanted to be a mother and, thinking about that first time you meet your child and that just was not how I imagined it. She was in the isolate and was on, um, was on life support. And I just had very few moments with her before they took her up to the level three NICU, the most serious of NICUs. And um, I was in recovery for maybe two hours by myself trying to tell people what had happened. And, um, not having answers for people with how are the babies and where are they and how are you and I was feeling all that by myself and finally um, a, a good friend of mine got to meet me in my postpartum room and then my husband joined us and kind of gave us more information about the babies. My son was on room air and doing very well and our our daughter was the it was the other end of the spectrum. She was on life support, and we just didn't have a lot of answers as to what had happened at the time. So my postpartum recovery with two babies, and literally I was on one floor, Madeline was on another, Jackson was on another. I hadn't even thought to ask about breastfeeding. <laughs> a nurse finally came in with a pump and showed me, and I learned how to pump with, like, some of my in-laws sitting around. And as soon as I started to – things started to set in that I had just given birth, um, I wanted up and out of that bed. So with my catheter and all my IVs, they put me in a wheelchair and took me to both NICUs and um, – that was pretty much the rest of my week was pumping, going back and forth to the NICUs, and then sitting in a room. Because in this particular NICU, you could only have a certain number of visitors in the NICU. And so most of the family that had kind of swarmed in couldn't go into the NICU to see the babies. So they would be in my room. And I remember a nurse coming in one time and saying, like, do you want me to kick them out? And I just didn't have the, I, in that time, I've never been so vulnerable. I, I didn't know how to advocate for myself and say, like, I really need to sit with what's going on or at least yeah. pump by myself, you know? Mm -hmm. So we, 
we were told um, after a neurologist visited that that Madeline's diagnosis was terminal, and we found that out when she was three days old, and she passed away the next day. They were born on May 9th, 2011, and Madeline passed on May 13th, and that was also the day that I was discharged from the hospital. So I was discharged without either baby, and for the next week and a half, I had to go back to the hospital, you know, morning to night to be with my son. And fortunately, he just, he was thriving. Um, He was born at five pounds, which is remarkable for a 32-weeker, and left the hospital just doing really great. But there was, and and I don't want to, there was so much good in the hospital. Um, I mean, there's nothing better than a NICU nurse. They're amazing. And, you know, there was so many people that had the best intentions, but I I really left the hospital without the support for what had happened with my daughter and also the support of how to really care for my son. I They had tried twice to put him to the breast and initiate breastfeeding, but his only real issue was temperature regulation, so he could only be out of the isolate for a very short amount of time. And then by the time he was discharged, that had never picked up. So I was exclusively pumping for him. And when we finally got to go home and things kind of, I mean, I don't know that they ever really settled, but for lack of a better word, when things settled, my husband and I are just looking around like, what just happened? Um, I was recovering from surgery, and I would never take back the effort I put in to getting myself all over that hospital. But what that meant is that I had a really difficult and long C-section recovery. You know, I didn't, it wasn't like I could sleep when the baby slept because I was in the NICU, in this loud, bright NICU with my baby for the first 10 days. And then we get home and he was on a three-hour schedule and I was pumping for him. So I pump, feed him, wash, repeat. It was it was a wild time, and I honestly don't remember much of it. And when we first started having people come in, very well-intentioned, but they only wanted to acknowledge my son's birth. I was around a lot of people that didn't want to talk about Madeline's death. And, you know, you get a lot of things where people mean well, and want, but they want you to move on. And just the thing about child loss is that you're never going to move on from that, just ever. It, it it changes, but you don't ever move on from it. So we heard a lot of, we heard a lot of, um, you know, at least you took home Jackson, and but Jackson's doing so well, and um, you can have more. And after all we've gone through after the C-section, we didn't, we didn't know that we'd want to go through that again. And all I wanted to do was, you know, acknowledge both events, and I wasn't getting that. It was a really very difficult time. I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD, and I started seeing a therapist weekly who was wonderful. That's a difficult thing for um, a mother in my situation to navigate because, um, you know, sometimes you go to a therapist and they're not the best fit immediately, and I was really fortunate to find somebody who I just immediately trusted and um, was just, she was walking right alongside me. And I was bringing my infant in his car seat every week. He, like, grew up in therapy for the first year. 
it was such a tough loss to navigate on top of that because a lot of loss organiz a lot of loss groups you don't want to bring a child to um, you know a loss group where women are dealing with pregnancy or infant loss and so I didn't find a support group I was very isolated and new motherhood for many women is isolating to begin with and it was just an especially isolating experience for me we we waited about 11 months before we even started discussing getting pregnant again. And I, I had decided that if, if I couldn't be back, I, I didn't know that I wanted to move forward. And so by that time, we'd had our medical records for quite a while. All I'll say about the birth is that we, we put claims against both the hospital and um, a claim against the doctor with the medical board. And so in order to do that, we needed all our records. But I just recommend that to begin with. I was listening to your first two episodes, and that's one thing both of you did was get your medical records for yourself to look at and not just have them pass from professional to professional. Having those in hand was really um, important for me to a, understand what happened and be kind of make an educated decision about whether or not I could move forward with a VBAC. And when we decided that we were going to try again, we were living in Houston and uh, had access to the Texas Medical Center, which is one of the largest medical centers in the world. But in 2012, there were probably only a handful of doctors that would do VBACs. And I met with one practice and said, I, I'd really like to VBAC. And they explained there's only one doctor in the practice that attends VBACs and that doctor has to attend. And it sounded like a lot of barriers, but I was in the practice. I went to a completely different practice, a completely different hospital. And my husband and I said, I, I think that we have enough information that we can try again. And the day after we met with that practice, I found out I was pregnant. And um, it was just a completely different experience than the first time. Um, there was so much joy the first time. And the second time, um, I was so thankful, but it was so painful, and um, it was it was four days before the twins' first birthday that we found out. So I, there was only about eleven and a half months apart, and I feel like there's a higher power that said if if we don't get her pregnant, she's not going to see this through. If if there's any waiting, so we um, we called that doctor back and told them I was pregnant, and they treated me with so much sensitivity, got me into that one doctor that saw VBACs immediately, had another early ultrasound where we saw our daughter's heartbeat. Of course, we didn't know it was a girl at the time, but um, again, we played those first 13 weeks close to the vest. And this time, because I'd had preterm labor and a neonatal loss, I, I saw a high-risk doctor. And again, he treated me with so much care and respect and sensitivity. And after having gone through such a, a devastating delivery, to have these doctors really nurture trust in me, it, it meant so much. And we decided, having gone through the need for a NICU, that we weren't going to consider anything other than a hospital birth, despite what we'd experienced in the hospital previously. So 
one of the friends who I had first told about my twins' pregnancy to very early on, I mean, it may have been the same day I found out I was pregnant. She's a doula, and that's why I called her. And she's always been very sensitive to um, unsolicited advice. But when I came to her with this next pregnancy, she said, Megan, I'd really like you to consider a doula. I, I really think that it's going to give you some strength and you know, you use this word, you use these words a lot, but evidence-based research shows that doulas make for better outcomes and deliveries, and especially with VBACs. And so my husband and I did a little bit of research into what really doulas were and found a doula to interview. And I, I talked to my friend again, and she said, Megan, just please promise me that you'll interview like three doulas. Don't don't hire the first doula you speak with. So we have an in-person interview with this doula, and she is just my whole heart. <laughs> she um, shared some really amazing similarities and parallels in our lives, and um, her story's not mine to tell, but her own birth had been similar to what I had experienced as a mother, her own birth in that when she was born, not her children. And which was it was it was unbelievable. So we of course hired her immediately, despite what my friend said. And her work, so many doulas work begins, you know, when you're on call at thirty six weeks, but she recognized as a doula that was assisting in a VBAC and a doula that was assisting in a woman who was experiencing pregnancy after neonatal loss, that her work was really throughout the pregnancy. And we talked often about my doctor's appointments. We talked often about how I was feeling. Um, she really held my hand through the 32-week mark of this next pregnancy. And as we got further and further along, I had all the support from my doctors. I had, you know, we talked a lot of in VBAC circles about VBAC tolerant versus VBAC supportive. And my doctor could not have been more VBAC supportive. I'd go to her some days and be like, I don't know why I'm doing this. And she'd remind me and talk to me about how great an outcome it is when you have a successful VBAC and how great it is for both the mother and the baby. And we talked about what I didn't like about my recovery before and her hopes that she had for my next one. She really spent a lot of time with me I also, again, had a therapist <laughs> that I was seeing and my high-risk doctor and my doula, and I called them all my birthing posse because even though they weren't all together and even though my therapist and my high-risk doctor wouldn't be in the room, they just were all with me the whole way supporting all of my emotional needs I had during this really intense pregnancy. The last time I saw my high-risk doctor, he had his ultrasound machine on and he was looking at the baby and he just started talking to the baby who we had found out was a girl, as I may have said. He started talking to the baby and, and he gave this baby like a birth talk. He said, um, you know, I want you to let your mother sleep for a few hours and then for her to wake up in the middle of the night, know she's in labor, get safely to the hospital, and then after 
and not too short, not too long labor. I just want you to come healthy into the world. And he, he was talking to this baby. And at the whole time, I was like, this is incredible. Like, and I'm also like, I really need you to listen to him, baby, because this sounded perfect. So um, I had some false starts. I had a where I would need to go to the hospital thinking I was in labor and I wasn't. It was a very mental and difficult time. I was on um, I was on medication to prevent preterm labor, and so as soon as I went off that, um, I was all in my head about when this baby would come and just the anticipation of not just the baby getting here, but the baby getting here safely. And so on January 8th, after all of this anxiety, I went to sleep and then woke up around 1 a.m., the, almost the same time I woke up in labor with the twins, and I, I woke my husband up and said, it's time, called my doula, called my doctor. My doctor is a VBAC, wanted me in immediately. And so I came right into the hospital, and it was my hope to have an unmedicated delivery but I consented to a HEPLOC and wireless monitoring. I had all these hopes that I would get in a tub, that there would be candles. My labor went too fast for any of that. As soon as I met up with my doula, she started giving me counter pressure, and it was very intense labor. I had a resident there with me as well as a nurse, and I remember walking in, and I had my birth preferences, and it said that I was having a VBAC, and it gave a short, a short description of our previous loss, mentioning it so because I didn't want, um, I didn't want the people in the room to discuss my C-section. I really wanted to be present with this, with this birth, and so the the nurse just acknowledged that I was going to have a VBAC, and she said, "I'm just really excited about being on call for a VBAC tonight." And I said, "Well, we'll see. I'm hoping." And the nurse said, "No, we're going to have a VBAC tonight." And of all the things you read in the forums, you feel you almost feel like you're going into a situation like this adversarially. And so to have that continuation of really supportive care from the start of my pregnancy to this delivery was really one of the things that got me through. The resident was in the room, and my doctor, once I was admitted, was getting to the hospital because, like I had said before, because of liability, she was the only one that could deliver me. The the internist or the whoever was on the floor wasn't able to wasn't able to see me at all this time. So they checked me and I was a four. It was very intense and I turned to my doula and I said, if this is if this is labor, I can't go on much long and I'd like to scrap my plans and have an epidural. And my doula was intuitive and had seen enough birth that she knew that I was saying that as I was going through transition. But she didn't say, like, Megan, this isn't available to you. She just nodded and said, well, let's let the nurse know and see what we can do. And I, I like to think that her and the nurse exchanged, like, a knowing glance across the room and said something to placate me because they never called the anesthesiologist. But after another 30 minutes, they checked me, and I was, I was at a nine. I went through transition in about 30 minutes um, wow. and was ready to push. So I, when we established I was ready to per- push, the resident checked me. My doctor was still not there. And so she's probably getting, like, frantic pages. And this was the worst part of the birth is the 20 minutes where they told me not to push. And at one point, I 
screamed, this is not natural. And the resident in the room goes, no, this is, you're having natural birth. You don't have medication. And my doula later told me she knew exactly what I meant. To make me not push was not natural. Yeah. So, oh, it was rough. It was the worst part of the birth. And my, my doctor comes running in, sits down, and it's time to push. And um, during those 18 minutes, that's the closest I've ever felt to Madeline. Um, we just all believe that she saw her sister safely into the world. And after 18 minutes of pushing, my daughter Margot came out. And um, it, 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 there's, there aren't words to describe the happiness. It was the relief, the um, sense that I had done it, that my my body has seen this through, that Margot was here healthy. Margot's a big fan of her own birth story. She likes it. She, I always tell her when she came out, she came out bawling like a lamb, and it was just this loud, hearty, healthy noise. And we, we were all, the whole room, it was just incredible. And my husband turned to me and was like, you're a goddess, you're wonderful. And then he turned to our doula and said, we could not have done this without you. And I, like, was getting ready to yell at him because as much as my doula had done, I'm like, can you acknowledge that I'm here? <laughs> but that's how instrumental she was, is that, is that my husband, after, you know, after looking at our baby and looking into my eyes, then he turned to our doula and was like, incredible work, you know? And um, it was just, it was the most wonderful experience. She went straight to my chest. She came home from the hospital with me, and it was, it was beautiful. It was, it was everything I could have imagined, and it was also very difficult. I, there was 20 months between the deliveries, and so this time I was going home to two under two. And because of everything we'd gone through in those early postpartum days, the first time, we were very protective of ourselves. We hired my doula as a postpartum doula, so I had that support there and saw my parents and a very limited number of friends. But really, we were just on our own trying to figure this out and trying to hold space for this wonderful event that just happened and also um it it just felt like it was almost the first time it was the first time we'd been brought a baby directly home from the hospital it was the first time I'd really breastfed there was just a lot of firsts and so Margot we we moved from Houston to Seattle when Margot was about nine months old and at the time we were again we weren't really discussing more children because if if I hadn't had a VBAC, I don't know that I would have pursued that. So when we got to Seattle and started discussing, well, what do you think about a third? I approached it with that same um, assumption that I'd have to advocate my, for myself as I did in Houston. And Seattle was just a completely different birth culture. I I called the practice and said, how many VBAC supportive providers do you have? And they said, well, they're all VBAC supportive. And I'm like, so they'll all route you to a doctor who will support it? And they're like, no, they will all attend VBACs, everyone in the practice. Was, I was mind blown. 
And um, we waited about two years until we tried and found out we were pregnant again with a third. And I was just really excited to experience what, what I was hoping was going to be another normal pregnancy. I had confidence in my body. I had had a successful VBAC. And all those things were true, but what never left me was the anxiety over the delivery. We hired a doula again, which was absolutely the right call. And um, I had another doctor that believed in me. Just to be on the cautious side, we saw a high-risk doctor again, and we decided again to deliver in a hospital. And the special thing about this pregnancy is after finding out, we didn't, the first two times we didn't find out if we were having a boy or a girl. We, that 32-week mark where I delivered the twins just all over again, things just got very difficult. And again, my doula, all of her work was that front end of emotional support. There was one time where I just, I, I really thought I was going into labor and I was, I can't describe it other than to say I was very, very scared. And she talked with me on the phone and the contractions eventually stopped. And the next day she came and sat with me and took me on a short walk and rubbed my feet. And just that's all you can want when you're going through grief or in my case when I was going through such bad anxiety was for someone just to sit with me where I was. And yes, sure enough, um, 38 weeks. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. No, I just like agreeing with you. I just, that is just the biggest thing you could do. Anyways. It is. I'm sorry to interrupt. (laughs) No. So I was, I was, 30, 38 weeks again, I woke up at 1 in the morning and um, was sure I was in labor. And this time I called the hospital and told them, and they said, well, why don't you sit at home and labor for a little bit? And I said, no, um, I think I'm going to go ahead and come in. <laughs> and they were like, well, why don't you give it an hour and come in? And I said, well, I'll see you when I get there because I'm coming in. So my doula met us at the hospital in triage, and um, triage, I was at a three, and they said, well, you can go home and rest, or you can walk around for a bit, and I said, well, I'm, I'm going to ha- I think I'm going to have a baby in about um, like three to four hours, so I'm going to stick around here if that's okay with you, and they said, well, then go ahead and walk the halls, but we're not going to admit you yet. And I I kind of um, slipped out on my doula a little bit, and she said, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to delay monitoring for as long as possible. Because once you're admitted, you've agreed to monitoring, and I think they want you to, you know, kind of be free for a little bit. So I said, okay, and we walked the halls, and believe it or not, my husband and I had one of our first serious conversations about what we thought we were having. And um, we both thought it was a girl. And we were talking about her name, and we were looking things up on the Internet, like who was born this day and um, what significant events happened. And we hadn't settled on a name, but as we were walking the hall in Seattle where aviation is such a big deal, and Amelia Earhart, it said she, uh, it was an on this day, it was very recently that she had started her first trans-Pacific flight. So we were like, Amelia would be a lovely name for a girl. We think it's a girl. And as soon as we 
almost decided that my doula was like, I think we need to go back to triage. And they go and check me in triage, and I'm a five. And so they admit me, and I, I told my doula, I want music, I want a bathtub, I, I want this to be, you know, a little bit movie theater, a little bit what you have in your head. So my doula got that bathtub filled quickly. She turned on some music, and as soon as I got in the bathtub, I wanted out. I had wireless monitoring that was waterproof, so I, was, I had my heplock. I was in the bathtub. I wanted out, and I got out, and my water broke. So they say, let's get on the bed, and we're going to get the doctor in. And I told that nurse, I said, I'm going to push whether or not the doctor's here. <laughs> and so I'm on the bed, hands and knees. The doctor comes in. I turn around. She's like, whoa, there's the head. As silly as this sounds, as Beyonce's Run the World Girls was playing, my daughter Amelia was born. And Yay. so she was our, it was, again, no greater feeling always feel that connection with Madeline and we were just thrilled and I again I just I have no words we had this amazing nurse lovely doctor who all she did was caught the baby (laughs) catch the baby and and I was sure we were done I I I thought we were done and my husband turned to me I mean the placenta wasn't even out and said I really think the next one's going to be even easier and again, he runs into these things <laughs> right after the delivery. He says something where I'm like, I need you to shut your mouth. <laughs> but sure enough, Amelia was about a year old, and we, we looked at each other one day, and we were like, one more, why not? <laughs> so um, Amelia was uh, 14 or 15 months old when we found out we were pregnant again. And um, a little less than halfway through the pregnancy, my husband uh, got transferred to Portland. His, his job got transferred to Portland. So, again, I'm making this move um, halfway through my fourth pregnancy with three small children in tow. But if Seattle was great with birth culture, Portland is like a mecca. So I had never, um, in Texas and Washington, I couldn't deliver with midwives as a high-risk VBAC. And at OHSU here in Portland, their big medical center, they allow a high-risk VBAC midwives. So the, the downside was I was leaving my community in Seattle and moving halfway through my pregnancy. The upside was that I was getting to deliver with midwives. And our Seattle midwife um, knew that we were pregnant, and so when I told her we were moving, she said that it was it was pretty common. Seattle's about three hours north of Portland. That she had kind of a sister doula in Portland who she made referrals to, and that doula had earned so much of my trust. I just trusted her without qualification and hired this Portland doula. After one conversation, I just loved her. And uh, so we came to Portland, and I had, again, all the confidence that we were going to have a normal, easy pregnancy. And while everything was fine with the baby, uh, that 32-week mark just hit, and I was, I was devastated all over again. And this time I was, I was relatively alone. I, you know, hadn't really ingratiated myself into the community yet. We had only been in Portland a month and a half. I really leaned on my midwives this time. I really loved the midwifery model of care. 
they were so good to me in looking at what I needed for this pregnancy. Uh, things were bad enough that we decided that I was going to take medication to help with the anxiety at this time, which I hadn't done before. And again, my doula just really, she felt, we, we went out to the beach and um, my husband took this picture of me um, wearing my daughter on my back in a woven wrap at the 32-week mark. And my doula just went over visualizations with me, visualizing that picture, visualizing other pictures from my previous deliveries where I had my, you know, healthy girls on my chest and just walked with me that whole time, you know, maybe not so much literally, but again, recognized that a doula's work isn't just the however long you're in labor. And especially in my case, (laughs) the doula's in and out (laughs) during the labor. It's that emotional support I needed. So I was convinced this time. I think that you may have said this in your own birth story. I was like, this time I'm going to be overdue. (laughs) I've never gone past 38 weeks. I just was convinced this time I was overdue. (laughs) And my husband had been, you know, around long enough that he – Uh, about a week before I went into labor started saying, you're acting really broody. You're a little bit feral. (laughs) I think it's going to be soon. So my parents live in Seattle and, and he had my dad come for the week, but my mother wanted, my mother had always been there to watch whoever was at home while I was in the hospital. And so my mom thought that I would make it to 38 weeks and sent my dad to be my reserve that week while she finished up what she needed to in Seattle. And so sure enough, 37 weeks, five days, it all happened the same. I woke up around 1 a.m. I told my husband I thought I was in labor, but my daughter had school pictures in the morning, and so I was in a little bit of labor denial for a while. Um, I tried to get in the bathtub to stall labor this time. Instead of going straight to the hospital, I tried to get back into bed and fall asleep, and when I was in bed, I just, I've I've never been in labor and been so scared as I was this time, and um, I called my doula and told her, and she said, you know, do you, you want me to come to you? Do you want to meet at the, what would you like to do? And I, I had finally come around to the acceptance that I was in labor and this was happening. I had labored on my own for about an hour and a half, which I had never done. And I said, well, I think we need to meet at the hospital because otherwise, if we had to wait for you here, I don't know that we'd make it. Uh, we also had a birth photographer this time around. And so we, signaled for everyone to get going and then my husband realized that we did not have diapers for our year and a half year old (laughs) so I am calling the midwife to let her know and my husband's running out to whatever place had 24-hour diapers gets back we get in the car and I keep turning to him saying this baby might this might be the one we have in the car like we're not going to make it but we did. (laughs) I went into the emergency room where they were supposed to bring me up and my doula was waiting there. It was such a relief. And I turned to her and I said, I'm, I'm in transition now. And she goes, I believe you. I believe we're going to get up there and you're going to be in transition. And so she's, you know, pounding on the desk, like this woman looks very calm, but she's going to have a baby in the waiting room. Like, let's get her up. Let's get her up. So I get up and another th- one thing I love about midwifery model of care is that instead of and, and I also love a nurse, but 
it was the midwife and the midwifery student that came in to check me as soon as I got into triage. I mean, they practically walked in the room with me. And I remember thinking, like, oh, I'm going to be at a four or a three. And the midwifery student did a check and said, you're at an eight, and this baby's coming out. <laughs> so we walked straight to we walked straight to a delivery room, and I leaned over the bed, and I just started narrating. I said, the baby's moving down. I... I could, I could just feel the baby come, and I, I got on hands and knees, and I said, my water's about to break, and my water broke, and the room was quiet, and I just said, okay, the baby's coming out, and the midwifery student happened to be the one gloved and caught my son, and um, we have, I think that's where, I think that's where I initially came into contact with you. I have a picture up on Instagram of the birth photographer took a picture the moment that I saw that we had had a boy. And so as much as I had, I had been fine and comfortable delivering on my back, the first two V-backs, I delivered hands and knees this time. And it was a really cool experience to do that with midwives and a really comfortable nurturing hospital birth. And the beautiful thing about that was I later found out I had one of the, you know, everyone loves midwives, but one of the more senior favorite midwives at OHSU, and it says on my birth preferences, you know, I really don't want to discuss my first C-section. I really want to be present with my birth. And very intuitively, she came up to me and said, "Um, I just want you to know I've looked at everything, and I know what you've been through and what it took for you to get here and just what an honor it was that she got to see me have this last baby it was so I just felt so seen and for her to very appropriately acknowledge Madeline as as a baby that I had and not as um like a clinical thing that had happened to me was it really gave me it, it it sounds strange to say it took four verse to give me some closure there but it really gave me some closure and so um Holden as our last, we call him the caboose. We're we're done for good. Both my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, we we've done our job. <laughs> we're we're done. But it, it's just um, second to being a mother to these five children. Just one of my greatest joys and my greatest pride is that I I got to experience those three V backs and bring them into the world and. So discussing it is, is something that I, I really love, and in order to do that, I have to talk about our first delivery, which I know is, is difficult for some people, especially women who are just looking for an empowering birth story to hear. But there's a quote by Ronald Reagan who says, you know, we have a word for for children who've lost parents, and that's an orphan, and we have a word for when a spouse loses their husband or wife and that's a widow or a widower but we don't have a word for a woman who loses a child that's how devastating and um that's how devastating that loss is and so I go through life very quietly about it and being given the opportunity to talk about my daughter Madeline um really means a lot to me she she looks just like Amelia her, our third, or our fourth, her younger sister, they both have dark hair, and um, they both have big eyes. 
our son Jackson is, is now seven, and he he talks about Madeline. He likes to it to be acknowledged that he's a twin, and um, we talk about her life a lot. I went to Spain during their pregnancy, and we talk about the the time we were in Spain. We talked about she loved a smoothie. If if a girlfriend wanted to feel Madeline kick, she'd bring me a smoothie, and Madeline would start kicking immediately. There's so much about Madeline we can talk about besides the trauma and the death. And so um, I really appreciate that opportunity to do so and to talk about all five of my children and all four of my births. I just, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that story. Normally I'm, I'm jumping in through the whole thing and, but while you're talking through your experience, with your first birth and the loss of Madeline, I just I just put it on mute and shut up because I <laughs> was I was I this was the first podcast episode that I've actually cried at. Like make it the emotional one. I'm not the emotional one. I'm very grounded and I can hold myself together, but this is the first first time that I've cried during listening to a story for the podcast and um so thank you so much oh my gosh thank you for letting me talk for an hour (laughs) it was i'm glad i got this time oh good yeah i just um i want to say so many things and i could talk about so many parts of your story but i just want to i just want to end end things just i feel like there's so much I I don't know maybe awkwardness just for lack of a better word uh, mm-hmm. people when they're trying to talk to somebody who has gone through a loss especially of an infant like um, I like mm-hmm. that quote from Ronald Reagan because it's absolutely true like we know how to act when somebody loses a spouse we know how to act when somebody loses a parent but for some reason it is more difficult to know how to respond to a person who has lost a child, especially mm-hmm. especially a child at such a young age, or or a stillbirth, or a miscarriage, and I and I don't know where where the awkwardness is. Maybe it's because it's harder to understand, but I'm but I'm not quite sure. But I wanted to just offer some some tips because I feel like mm-hmm. if we could all just learn these things and share them and do them, then more people would know and share and do. Um, yeah. I, I attended a stillbirth as a doula when I was pregnant with my third daughter, and um, there was a woman trying for a VBAC after two C-sections. And it's, I'll spare all the details for the sake of time, but um, that birth changed me. It changed me, and... Being a doula at her birth, I was connected to her in a way that most other people don't get to be, uh, just being mm-hmm. there with her, supporting her through it. And because of that, she talked to me for a very long time afterwards, um, and I got to hear all of her anger and her frustration and her sadness and, and the things people did that helped and the things people did that didn't help. And... And it's helped me be more aware of how I act 
around people suffering um, the loss of children. And so I want to I want to share the things that I've learned. And Megan, please jump in. And if there's something that I'm saying wrong, please correct me. <laughs> My first thing is, <laughs> don't ever think that you know what it's like going through mm-hmm. that loss just because you know um, your sister, your friend, your cousin went through a loss. Um, and you get so many comparisons. Yeah. I, 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 I am light about it, but it's heavy. I call it like it's almost like a grief Olympics. Like yeah. people feel like they need to, um, in order to feel empathy for you, that they need to like compare or they need to one-up you. And you even see that in birth. Like yeah. I'll, I'll be in a conversation where people are discussing their difficulty in birth, which is completely valid, but you, there's this sense of one-upness almost, like who has it worse? And I sit, I sit kind of back and I'm like, I have it worse, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I don't want to fall into that, but you're, mm-hmm. you're right. It's, there's a lot of comparison and, and you don't have to compare experiences in order to feel empathy. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, the second thing I learned is don't ever say at least followed by anything. Yes. If you're thinking of saying at least X, Y, Z, at least you're healthy, at least you have other kids, at least, at least, at least, shut up before you say mm-hmm. I'm just saying that very nicely. I can be a very frank person and very direct. And I feel like I can also be very uh, empathetic and sympathetic, but I feel like if you feel like you're going to say at least, just shut up. Don't say mm-hmm. it. Don't say it. That's probably what some people, but really just don't say it because there's no at least, okay? Um, the next thing I'm going to say is all you have to do, I really like um, Megan. You just listened to Megan's story. Her doula, the way her doulas helped her through her pregnancy is exactly what you can do. Be there for them. Ask them how they're feeling, and then be quiet and listen. Don't try and talk. Don't try and say, um, don't try and think of something to say. Just listen. Just hear them. Mm -hmm. Just be in their space and listen and hug them. If they're a hugger, don't hug them. If they don't like hugs, (laughs) be in their space, okay? Because that's just the biggest thing is acknowledgement that there is grief and then listening One of the best things, I got an email from someone early on, and they went, whereas I felt like people were either ignoring me or asking for too much information. Mm -hmm. It's it's like, you know, you follow the lead of of the person going through this, and I felt like often I was kind of like pushed for information, whereas at the time I was, it's not even like I had the information myself, but I, I got an email that just said, I, I'm here for you, but you don't have to respond to this email. Yeah. I just want you to see this and know that I'm thinking about you and that if you do want to respond and it serves you, I'm here for that. And if it doesn't serve you to do anything but read this email and go on about your day. And that's who I wanted to speak to is, is the person that illustrated that kind of um, – care that that they were there for me and not necessarily to not necessarily for themselves if that makes sense like that was a completely selfless 
way to reach out. And that was what spoke to me most. And that's what I remember now, you know, seven years later. Yep. I agree. I think that's great. And it actually is the next thing on my list. I was actually making notes while you were talking. Um, <laughs> um, is just listen in, listen to silence. If there's mm-hmm. silence, don't try and fill it by talking. I mean, in so, some instances it would probably be appropriate, but when in doubt, silence. Just let it be quiet. Just be there and hold space. I have on here food. Bring food. Always mm-hmm. bring food. Food is always good. Yeah. And this is the thing. Don't bring it in dishes that they have to bring back to you. Go to the dog right. store. Get those little metal foil disposable pans. Get them some mm-hmm. paper plates, some plastic utensils, and some napkins. Bring it to their porch. Text them. Say, I have left food on your porch and leave. And that way, yeah, that's perfect. That way they don't have to talk to you if they don't want to. They um. They don't have to have this awkward conversation that there's food and they feel loved. I feel like you can do a lot with food. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Another thing is, you know, um, Megan mentioned that she had PTSD and it was hard for her to find support because she don't want to bring a newborn to a support group with her. But know the appropriate resources in your area for loss. And if you don't know them, Refer them to a postpartum doula or or somebody or connect them um, in some way with somebody that can help them that is experienced in dealing with this professionally. And it's not it's not hard to do a Google search to look up postpartum doulas or things mm-hmm. like that in your area and have that information if you need it and you feel it's appropriate. And and as always, make sure that if there if you are Feeling that a mother is, um, let's see, what's the right word? Um, wanting to harm herself or her mm-hmm. other children. Um, there's postpartum psychosis, right, which can definitely be brought on by grief. Then don't be afraid to call somebody and help immediately. But yeah. don't just don't just do that willy nilly. Okay, make sure. Mm-hmm definitely important and that there's risk of immediate harm or danger but don't just go giving out somebody's information to anybody you know I don't know I feel like there's a good balance of that but don't be afraid if you're afraid for somebody's life or physical well-being or emotional well-being reach out for help and it could even be to their spouse or their or their mother or somebody that can more appropriately help them I guess that's what I was trying to say don't just say, let me know if you need anything. Although sometimes... Oh, yes. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. Don't just say, like, let me know if you need anything. Because guess what? Nobody is ever going to ask you for anything. They yes. Know it's so hard because... You that was a huge mistake I made. I would just sit there, you know, completely void of knowing my surroundings. And I'd be like, no, I'm okay. But really, I'm like, I need dinner. You're not okay. (laughs) Like I said, food is always the answer. You can always bring food, okay? Always food. But ask instead. I need you to make me a glass of water. (laughs) You know, it's like anything. Like, that's exactly right, that instead of saying, can I do anything for you, you think of how you can help them and you offer that help specifically. Yep, just say, when can I? When can I bring you dinner? When can I have your kids over for a play date? 
when can I come fold your laundry? When can I come, you know, do your dishes? Mm -hmm. Offer a service and ask when it would be appropriate to do that. And something I want to add to, and this is just kind of for for a loss of any any anyone, you know, um, but check in after the funeral. A habit I yeah. is when I have know a friend that's suffering from a loss of any kind is I always send flowers like a week after the funeral because what happens is that everybody's giving attention and everybody's checking in and everyone's bringing food and everyone's sending flowers until the funeral. And then the day after the funeral, it is like everybody's gone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, uh, you know, not sometimes, all the time, a nice gesture or a thought or a meal or a flowers or a note or, a, or an email saying, I'm here if you need me when you're ready to talk, is the biggest difference in somebody's life. And it can help help them feel remembered and loved. And then I just want to throw in there, when you're dealing with a woman who has suffered a loss of a child, use the child's name. Don't say, oh, your daughter or the baby you lost. Say Madeline. You know, what's the, ask them about her. You know, ask them about the child or what's, what do you remember most or, or, or I don't know, something. Just use their name and, and always count them as a child. So yeah. when you're referring to how many kids Megan has, say five. Don't say four. That child existed. You, that child existed in a very big way just because it was for not as long of a time as the rest of her kids doesn't make it any less significant of an impact on her life and on her family. So don't cut that child out of the, of the children count of that family. So those are my tips on how to support a woman um, or a family emotionally through a loss. But Megan, would you add anything else? I think, I think all those things are great. Um, you and I talked before about just as, as a mother, you want each of your children to have weight in the world. And so all those things give that mother the feeling that, that her child had weight, you know. And, and she may be parenting that child differently, but I'm still going through my daughter's birthdays. I'm still going through anniversaries with Madeline. I'm, I'm still raising Madeline's brother, you know, mm-hmm. and, and subsequent siblings in her memory. And so even though it may seem like a season to some people, it's really something that stays with you the rest of your life. And for people to talk about your child really eases some of that, that you're not alone in, in dealing with this just you and your spouse that you have um, you have people around you that love love your child as much as they love you know your surviving children that's really important yes absolutely I, I agree with that so much um, thank you again so much for sharing your story with us and for for letting me be in this space with you right now I know lots more people are going to hear this eventually but but right now I feel very honored to be in this space and Megan um, is at a birth right now that not, <laughs> um, not the Megan I'm talking to the other Megan no. the one that's always <laughs> on the podcast Megan, yes. Too many, so many Megan 
Um, <laughs> and I, I literally texted her in the middle of your story, and I said, I am so sad that you oh. are not here to, to listen to this story because it's incredible. And so I can't wait for her to hear your story, and I can't wait for the whole world to hear. And, and this is going to make the memory of Madeline reach even farther, and I'm so glad that she gets to touch more people's lives through this podcast. So thank you for allowing us to share her story with, with as many people as we can. Thank you so much for your time. It's really, it's meant the world to me. Thank you. Hey, guys. Did you know we have a new website? Well, we do. It is thevbacklink.com. We are always looking for new stories. To share your story and possibly be on our podcast, post your story on social media and hashtag YWeVBack and tag us at thevbacklink. Or you can complete the new form on our brand new website at thevbacklink.com slash share. Don't forget about our online VBAC prep courses. To learn more, head over onto our website. Be sure to rate us and share and leave your reviews. We are excited to hear what you think. For families local to Utah, be sure to check out our website, utahvbacklink.com. Dot com for more information on our VBAC childbirth classes and doula services. Thank you so much for listening. We are excited for you to begin your journey with us.